So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you've been paying attention, you know that we're not in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or we shouldn't be, but we are this morning, and I can explain that. Um, We're jumping ahead a few weeks because we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. And so this is Paul's instruction about the Lord's Supper that we often read when we take it. And so we're doing a little reshuffling. They'll be uh, going back. It's actually worse than that. Next week, we won't even be in 1 Corinthians because every year I kind of like just do a special special message, so that's next week, and then we're into chapter 9 after that, and then 10 again, so does that make sense? Just go where the person leads you when we, when we come and teach up here. So 1 Corinthians 11 is where we'll be, it's a little bit of reshuffle, we'll be back into chapter 10 rather, and then we'll finish. Uh, in case you're wondering and you're people that need to finish things on time, we'll be done with 1 Corinthians, theoretically, at the end of March. All right. So if you are entirely sick of this book, which I really hope you aren't because it's been super fruitful, that's when we'll be um, aiming to be done. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, a couple verses before what we usually read. We'll talk about that after we pray. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. Here we go. Paul's writing here and he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's rebuking them. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink As you eat, rather, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So then when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is an amazing text about a meal that we take often and maybe you're very familiar with. And I pray that God would just speak to us in that. And so we're going to pray. I want you to pray silently, and then I will lead us in just a brief old Anglican prayer. But you pray, and then I'll pray for us together. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it? 
Why do we do it the way we do it? Those are all good questions that I'm sure you've been asking all morning, so we're going to address those through God's Word. And why do we also want kids present? That's, I'm not going to answer all these questions this morning about it. There's not enough time for that, but I'll hit on several things. It's an attitude of why we want kids present in this meal too, because we want them to learn about what we're doing together as the command of Scripture is to take it together. And so um, we, we always want um, our families present and kids present. We made the shift from Sunday school uh, years ago, I guess, um, where kids were uh, only present for the, the first Sunday of the month. But the same is true. We want kids observing and worship what we do, and we want to understand it ourselves. And so Paul instructs in this way. And the best summary that I've ever heard about the Lord's Supper, and maybe a focal point for us to just fixate on today, is this. The death of Christ eternal, or central rather, the return of Christ dominant, the love of Christ in control. The death of Christ is central. The return of Christ is dominant in thought. It's not just about the death, but we'll see about proclaiming when he'll come again. And the love of Christ in the body in control. So to understand what's going on, as I read, you have to understand the context of what's happening in Corinth. Paul is writing as he begins, and he is rebuking harshly, indeed, the church for how their Lord's Supper looks. He's not very pleased, as you gathered from the reading of the text. It's not a good commendation. It's no commendation at all. In fact, because in the church in Corinth, there were divisions and factions. He mentions it, right? There were people that were rich and poor, and when they came together as a body, there was division not as it was designed to be. And so rich people were not caring for younger people in that, or poor people rather, and people were just eating. There's also two meals that the text is talking about, which I think is really relevant here. There's a Lord's Supper meal, but they were also gathering for an agape meal, which had been a love feast. And so if you see while people are eating, like, I mean, I'm sure you read that, and if you were confused, like, how could people get full on this particular meal, a little cracker and juice? That's not what he's saying. They were eating a larger meal, and some people were just being gluttonous. They were just partaking and being full, which is why he says later, like, you have homes for that. And they were not caring for one another in the church. And so that's why Paul addresses that in verse 17, the following instructions, I do not commend you the way that he says, because when you come together, it's not actually for your better, it's for worse. Not a good commendation for a church. So the thing that they thought they were doing religiously, he's saying, this isn't actually embittering you as a people of God, it's making things worse. He goes on to say in verse 18 that when they come together, I hear their divisions. We talked about it, and he believes it. For in verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. The, what Paul is saying there is those who thought of themselves. Remember, Corinth is like intellectually revered, and that's their thing, and they tote that. And those with wealth were kind of like positioning themselves as more genuine. They needed to be noticed and recognized, and they kind of did whatever they want with no restraint, and Paul is rebuking them for that. And he's saying, as this is a pretty harsh rebuke, in fact, in verse 20, that it's not even the Lord's Supper that they're eating. Now, we shall pause there, and again, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians as ways to, like, in many ways, learn not how to look like the church in Corinth. They were making mistakes and being sinful in many areas, and this is one of them that we should pause and say, when we come together as a church body to take the Lord's Supper, it better look like the Lord's Supper. It ought to be like that. This would not be a commendation you'd want from Paul to say, you know what, it's not even what you're doing together. That's not what I would call what Jesus meant it to be. And there's different ways that fleshes out, and maybe it's the attitude of our hearts. We'll talk about that. 
Maybe it's the way that you come in and just are an autopilot and, yeah, first Sunday of the month, I take it, I don't really understand, I don't really do what I'm supposed to. And so those are the things that I want to kind of focus on, instruct us towards, that this ought to be a Christ-centered time when we take this. Remember, the death of Christ central, the return of Christ dominant, the love of Christ in control. So let this rebuke that Paul is making never, I hope, be said of our church body. It's serious, and you can minimize it in a way. And I believe this meal can become other things to different people in different church bodies. So with this warning, how I want to structure our time is that we need to know how to act. And I want to put this acronym up, hopefully in a way that you both learn this text and maybe even use this as you come to the Lord's Supper, this little acronym, and I'll explain each letter as we go. So here's what I want to recognize in the ACT acronym. I want to recognize our attitude, that in this meal we recognize the Lord's authority and presence. And I'll talk about that. And then we recognize the conduct. And this is the actual what's happening here. The Lord's word and the Lord's body. So the Lord's word would be the, the command as Paul is instructing, do this as Jesus instructed Paul's reminding. So it's actually the what's happening in the meal itself. And how do we feel and think and act about the church body as we do it together? And then finally, the thoughts. What are we thinking about when we take this meal together? Should be the first coming and the second coming. We should have both thoughts in view as we take this meal together. So that's the acronym that we'll focus on as we move through this before we take the meal together. First, the right attitude. This is the acknowledgement of the Lord's authority and the Lord's presence. Look at verses 21 and 22. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Remember the agape meal. What in, Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No, I will not. See, these people were completely selfish in the way they came together. And that could have only been by the attitude of their hearts, right? So one is getting drunk. One is not waiting for another. One is not thinking about the body. Paul says that attitude is despising the church of God. Who? The church of God, his body. That's a huge emphasis on your attitude when you come to the Lord's Supper is introspective in the sense of I have to have a right attitude, joyful, thinking about my walk with the Lord, but I'm also, how often have we done this? Thinking about others in the body. Where I fit into that, thinking about what we're doing collectively, that all has to do with this attitude generally as I come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And Paul is making the body a key emphasis here in this text. And we need to be aware of what is going on when we come to this meal. And we need to be aware of the church of God, those who belong to the church of God. And you must come humbly and reverently to this meal. We talk about that often. Each time, in fact, I say, instruct us as we begin, if you need to let this meal pass, you pass. And sometimes that's because your attitude is horrible and you know it. And you need to not participate because you, you understand your attitude is not right. And here's what I'd say about that. I think in the church sometimes, I know this to be true, that you're worried about what other people think. But I don't know if I want to have like somebody see me pass the meal. It would be wise if you knew that your attitude towards God or a brother or sister was bad to make that, to, to pass on that. That would be better, as Paul is saying, what's better, not worse, right? And so don't think about that. Don't care about that. It is really about worshiping one God with like 
no care for what other people think about that. Concentrate on what God would have you do and check your attitude in that way. And in that attitude, you need to recognize his authority. The authority of his lordship and his word and his presence. What does that mean, authority? Simply this. I believe when you come to the Lord's Supper and you recognize your attitude as it relates to authority, you're saying this. Listen, I'm not perfect, but my life is shaped generally by the submission to God's word. I believe that only those who can partake in the Lord's Supper are those who come and say, you know what? I'm not perfect in this, and it can be a time of confession. We'll talk about that. But my life is shaped by living under the of God's, authority of God's word, which means if I'm not living under that authority, I should not participate in the meal. If I have no acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ or his authority and his word, I should not participate in that meal. If I don't care what the Bible says or what Christ has said and commanded me to do, I should not participate in that meal. That's what that means, the authority part. And then acknowledging the presence part of Christ, which is where we get to the second point of the acronym in our conduct. So we focus our attitude on the Lord's authority and presence and then the conduct, which we'll get to presence more as we talk through this, the conduct, the Lord's word and the Lord's body. Verses 23 through 26, Paul unpacks, reminds us of what Jesus, what Linda read earlier, what Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper. And so Paul received it through a revelation directly from the Lord, whether that was directly from Jesus or through oral tradition, he received it from Christ. It was red letters, and that's what you see if you have red letters, even in 1 Corinthians 11, it's Jesus' words here. And so Jesus said this in verses 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord, this is not Jesus' part, what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he took, that he was betrayed, took bread. Stop there real quick. It's not a wonder why Paul includes that little, this is a little side note, the betrayed part. I think he's telling the Corinthians something here, reminding them that in our own relationship with Christ, we can betray him, right? And so you might wonder and say, why does Paul include that on the night? Everybody knows that was the night. Because I think it's profound that he does. There's an attitude about us at times in which we can betray Christ. And so he adds that in there. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's the command part. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, there's the command part, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus institutes that practice. So Jesus, Paul is going back to the time where Jesus took the bread he gave thanks, and he broke it, and then he made a statement about it. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and then they partook in it, and then he made a statement about it. So each followed by, do this in remembrance of me. So he said, this is my body. This represents it. This is my blood. It's the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. I grew up in a church that had this table. We don't have the table with this, but it says on the front of the table, said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a good reminder because Jesus said, do it this way. Take the bread and take the cup together. Now, I'm briefly going to address this. Some of us just by way of wondering might, well, what about the actual elements? We do grape juice and these little gluten-free, kind of dry-tasting, nasty little flatbed crackers, Right? That's what we do, and I want the big, when I grew up, when actually, when I grew up, we did a real loaf of bread, but like everybody's gluten-free now. I, you didn't see me roll my eyes. I apologize for that. Um, 
That didn't happen, if you thought you saw that, it didn't happen. We did real bread, and it was broken, and then we did, actually, when I grew up, we did real wine in two silver cups. Common cup. You know what people would say on your comment cards if we did that today? But that's how we did it, and I still, if I could go back and I'd make a change to this church, I would do it with a common cup, and some of you are like, no, I would do it. Here's why I would do it. And I'm, I'm not trying to side, you know, derail my whole sermon here, but here's why I would do it, is because I always grew up, and yeah, I don't know if I, as a kid I understood, like, how many people were actually drinking for that cup, and like, Mr. Sanders in the back was like, <laughs> no, I don't, here's what I thought about that, though, and here's what I think about it more maturely now, I think the spiritual element of that meal, as if God was not big enough for this, right, was to protect the people of God in that moment from any germ that could ever enter that cup. And I know that's so like, oh, that's like not even science. Exactly. <laughs> exactly my point. I would do it again is to share because it's about the body. And I remember growing up in that church and you'd have one side, one cup, and it was efficiency. That otherwise, it had just been one giant cup. But we drank from that cup and we drank real wine. Now, here's what I'd say about that. Does it have to be wine? No, it doesn't have to be wine. Does it have to be a loaf of real bread with yeast that makes the dough rise? No, but it can be something like that or close to that. That's what I would say. I think in the church, it ought to be something that represents what Jesus did. So for example, chips and Coke, not good. (laughs) And some people I've seen in some churches, well, this is all we have where we get together. No, I think Jesus, you have to be close to what, so does it matter crackers? I don't think so. Does it matter grape juice? That resembles or uh, comes close to the fruit of the vine? That's perfect. We do that for different reasons. But that's what I would say about that. But it is getting it close to what the Bible says. So back to the presence of Christ. We said the word and the presence. Now there are three, I'm not going to give you a church history lesson, but there are three views that are... um, out there in church history about the Lord's Supper. The first is transubstantiation. It's a big word. It's more how the Catholic Church views the meal, all right? This is the Roman Catholic Church assert that the elements used in the ordinance are literally transformed to Christ's body and blood, all right? So they're said to have this intrinsic sacramental value for everyone who partakes. So the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation in this meal, that when we see these elements, they literally transform to the physical presence of Christ in the blood and body, that it's Christ's blood and body. The second view is consubstantiation, which is more of a Lutheran view, is the doctrine that denies the elements actually change, but asserts that the literal present Uh, presence of Christ is present in, under, and the elements, or in, under, and with the elements so that Christ may be received sacramentally. It's a little different. So there's both there. They're in, under, around. They're not necessarily physically transformed. And then there is a more reformed, what we practice, memorial view. And this asserts that the term body and blood are not to be taken literally, but only symbolically. And the observance of the ordinance is a commemoration a memorial, right, of the death of Christ, but spiritually, Christ is present. And that's what we practice here. There are no sacramental saving elements about the bread and the blood, the bread and the cup. So when you take them, that doesn't save you. Linda said that earlier as she prayed. There's nothing saving in the actual elements themselves as others believe. It remembers the work that Christ did on the cross that he already has done for us. That's why it's by faith, right? 
So when we have trusted Christ by faith, we trust in his atoning work at the cross, the blood he shed, and this remembers that meal and projects us forward to his second coming. Now, if you have a Bible, flip back to John 6 real briefly here. And I know, actually, I don't actually have a time constraint. There is no Packer game today and no football game that any of you care about. So we'll just do this all morning. So chapter 6. Welcome if you're a visitor, um, by the way. <laughs> chapter 6. Just, I, I need to, this is context here for understanding what this is talking about. Jesus in John chapter 6 is teaching really hard things to disciples. In fact, so much so that many disciples leave him after this particular teaching. They say, that's crazy. You're crazy. I don't know if I can agree. I'm just going to read really fast from verse 35, skipping some parts through 59. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, yet you not believe. Then we skip down to verse 47. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats the bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then he skips down and he says this, which is why people think he's crazy. He says, truly, in verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I'll stop there. You can read the rest later. But his disciples basically, basically in response said, what is that talk about eating Jesus? That's crazy. And what Jesus was saying there, he says, I'm spiritual food, and you need me to have eternal life, a relationship with me. And so what does that mean? It means feasting on Christ. We can do that spiritually. And the disciples that didn't know missed it. He said, you want more of me in your life. And you need the cross for salvation. You need to eat my body. I'm the bread of life spiritually. And you need to drink my blood. You need to be sealed with it. It needs to cover your sin as a seal of righteousness, the atoning work on the cross, and to enjoy fellowship with him and to submit to him joyfully and follow him. That's what he said. That's what he meant. He said, feast on me. So when we come together at the Lord's Supper, it's an attitude of feasting on Christ, saying, I want Jesus to be my everything. And so from verse 26 on there, so we see the attitude, the conduct, he gets to the third letter of our acronym in our thoughts. What are we thinking about? We ought to be thinking about the, the Lord's first coming and second coming. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, that's the death, until he comes. That's the second coming. So we are to focus on the Lord's first coming and his death and the Lord's second coming in his return. And I want you to see two words that we kind of latch on to as you think about thoughts, proclaim and examine. Look at proclaim in verse 26. What does that mean? It means that this is not a private act. Many of us come to the Lord's Supper and we say, well, this is my time with the Lord. That is true to a degree. But proclaim means we shout something together as a body, right? 
You proclaim the Lord's death. When a church comes together and takes this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death, which means we identify it, which means we are joined with Christ, which means this is only a meal for believers, those who have done that. If you wonder about that at this very moment, say, I don't know that my life proclaims the death of Christ. I would say, then you have some questions you have to ask about where you are with Christ. This is a meal for believers who proclaim the Lord's death. And unbelievers don't do that, right? They don't shout out what the Lord has done for them by taking their place at the cross because of their sin. Only believers that recognize and have received the grace of God in their life recognize what Jesus has truly done for us there. And so that's why Paul's instructing in this way. Again, nothing salvific in the elements themselves, but what the Lord has already done for us. It's about his death. But there's also an anticipatory element about it too. His coming again. As we look forward, when we come to this meal, we should also look forward. You know, I talked to some people this morning, 2020 is going to be a really weird year, I think, in our country. I think politically around our nation. Talk of wars and rumors of wars. And here's what I'd say. I want Jesus to come back now. Yeah, and I get some amens about that. That's what it is to come together to this meal and say, Jesus, come quickly. That's when we focus on, when we take this meal. I think it's a beautiful thing that the church takes this meal and says, God, what if right now you just came and just raptured us right now? Wouldn't that be glorious? That's what we ought to focus on as well, not just the Lord's death, but also anticipating his return. That's the proclaimed part. The other part is, Paul says, examine. You must examine yourself. This is a rigorous and honest scrutiny in verse 28 here. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So if you've never done that, today would be your first chance at saying, have I truly examined my heart before I took this meal? Or have I just been on autopilot? This is examining ourselves spiritually where we are. Paul, in fact, says in verse 27 there, there's an unworthy way in which you can take that. You'll be guilty concerning the body and blood in verse 27 there. He says, examine yourself. Whoever eats it without that proclamation or regard to Christ in that way drinks judgment on yourself. Now, you have to note again, and I said this earlier, you don't have to be morally and spiritually perfect to take this meal. None of us would be able to do that then. But you do have to be pursuing Christ in that way, leading a lifestyle of repentance and faith, being under his authority and being recognizing his real presence. And Paul challenges us to discern the body and examine in this way. And he says body, and here's what I think that means when he says discern the body. I think two things. One is the spiritual presence of Christ, as if this, as when you take this meal, Christ sits right next to you. I believe that is part of it. Spiritually, it's as if, if we have the spirit of Christ in us, when we take this meal together, Jesus is very present. And so sometimes some of us weep, during this time because we know of our sin. Some of us are thankful. Some of us are convicted of sin. But it's a real present awareness of Christ about the body, what he did for us at the cross. And here's the second thing. I think the emphasis is clearly on the church. And I would emphasize this, emphasize this as a least of equal value to say, what is my standing here within the body of Christ? Who are these people I'm doing this together with? There's a key word Christ used when he manifested the meal. Covenant. And what is a covenant? It's agreement between God and his people historically, right? The Israelites in the old and now the church in the new. All throughout the Old Testament, God makes covenants with 
Israel, his people. And then Jesus comes along, and on this night, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which means when I go to the cross, and I'm going to be buried and resurrect myself, and I'm going to be alive and well, you don't need to keep doing that law stuff to follow and, and keep shedding animals' blood, because it's finished. Here's my new covenant for the church. And so a great question to ask today, and I'm asking you to ask this, whether or not this is your covenant family. Think about that. Is real hope my covenant family? As members, we covenant one to another, as formal members. Now, I say every time we take this meal, you don't have to be a formal member here. I'm making that provision for those who are guests and visitors to not exclude. But what I wish and hope, and I know what the elders, because we've talked at length about this deeply for two years, is that you're a member somewhere, covenantally to a body, because it's important to be connected to a church family. And so that's a question you have to ask. goes back to that authority in a way. Are you using your gifts here? Is this your family? Do we just see you on Sundays? Friends, you don't want to get me rolling on that. That's like a distant uncle or cousin at a family meal, right? I mean, really, if you're part of a family of God, you're, you're in the family. You don't just show up at the holiday meals and everybody goes, who's Uncle Charlie? I don't ever know. I don't even see him. And it's a conviction, I know, and a challenge, but we want you to be part of the body. And if this is your covenant family, then you're engaged in it. That's what family is. You serve and love one another. That's what Paul is driving at. The reason why he was so upset about the divisions, he said, this is a unifying thing we do, which means there's unity, which means you encourage one another with spiritual gifts, which means you are seeing each other through the week, reading your Bible together. It means there's discipleship relations happening together through the week where one is teaching another about what God has taught them. It means you're praying together. I see two women of our church, they know who they are every Tuesday for as long as I think I can remember here, they pray on this property, walk around the, the property every Tuesday. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. You pour yourself in. So that's part of this whole body thing. And these are important things to think about. Examine in a broad sense when you come to this meal, along with your status within the body, a very personal sense of how I belong here in my relationship with Christ and others. The judging of ourselves here is important, as Paul reminds us as I wrap this up in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What is he saying? If we took that kind of examination seriously, then we'd have probably a good status with Christ, right? If we really reflected on our spiritual state and knew if we were saved by faith. But when we are judged by the Lord, that's the eternal judgment for the unbeliever, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Who's going to be condemned? Those who do not know Christ, the world. Paul's saying this would be a good thing to think about as you participate in this meal. And when I say participate, you can participate even by letting those elements pass at times. And here's his final exhortation as I close this text here in verses 33 and 34. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. That's the agape meal, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when you come. Do you ever wonder why we take it together? Why, we, why it's not just like when we pass this out, and we'll do it in a moment here. We say we'll hold those and we'll take them together. That's why. Because we wait for one another and we do it in unity and we take the, the things, the elements together. So let's take it together. Let's examine, let's proclaim the Lord's death together, maybe in a more clear way to take care in how we act. I want to just remind us of these before 
I invite the servers up to take this meal, our attitude, check that. Is it one of the Lord's authority and presence? Have I made a decision to follow him faithfully? By faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. It's about my conduct. I think of the Lord's word and about the body of Christ. And it's about my thoughts to remember what the Lord has done and what the Lord has promised he will do to come and take his children home. The death of Christ central, the return of Christ dominant, the love of Christ in control. Let's pray together.